talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board. I understand my dad used his cowbell on the show yesterday. Sorry, I thought I removed the little metal ball after my last hockey tournament. It was you! Here, Scott! It was you! What? Wait, 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 Good afternoon. Sabotaged by my own family. Uh, good afternoon. It is 309. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It's Hamilton Today. Will on the board. Ken in for Ted today and Diana as well. And man, as soon as I heard it, as soon as I heard the Jimmy Buffet. Steel knew, drums. You know what that means. I knew I, I knew exactly that our, our resident parrot head was in the house and uh, and picking the tune today. Ken Mann is the ultimate parrot head. How many times have you seen Jimmy Buffett? I think Eight. I thought you were going to say 80. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, he only so comes I, around this area every few years, right? So That's right. I hear yeah. you. Uh, and I, have you gone chasing him? Have you been to any of his establishments? Uh, the restaurants and... and yeah. The, oh, yeah, absolutely. I've been to many of those. I mean, there's the one just down in Niagara <laughs> Falls, of course. Orlando. Yeah. Uh, in the Cay- islands? Cayman Islands. Absolutely. So yeah. how did you explain the song? First, tell us what the song is. Uh, that was Weather With You. And is, is that new, old, whatever? Oh, not, not new. That one's maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. So how did you become the ultimate parrot head? And I know you've even got the headwear, don't you? Uh, yeah. Got a, the grass not to mention all that. Yeah, absolutely. A few hundred, a few hundred shirts. <laughs> uh, so how did you become a parrot head? You know, actually, it was, it was one of my cousins many, many, many years ago, maybe... 30, 35 years ago, he was he was a fan, and I'd gone to visit him down in the States, where he's from, and he was listening to uh, Jimmy Buffett, and I, and I thought, what's this? And I, I really enjoyed it, and then I started to buy some of his uh, releases and records and things, and yeah, I just became a bigger fan as it went on, and then I went to see him live, which is truly an amazing experience, just, it, it's it's an event, is what it is. I have never, I've never seen him live, but I've certainly seen a uh, video of him at shows and such. And I hear that's one of those shows. It's like, uh, it's like a Grateful Dead show used to be. It's like one of those things you just have to experience. It's truly unique. Yeah, it really is. It, it's, it, it's an amazing group of fans, people who have, you know, regular lives otherwise, and then they show up at these shows in their grass skirts and coconut bras <laughs> and everything else. And, uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. All right. I want to see a shot of you in a coconut bra, please. Could you get that on, you our, really website, don't. on our social media? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ken. Thanks so much. Ken Mann picking the top hour tune for today, as we always do on Hamilton Today, to give everybody a shot at uh, and give you a little bit more depth as to what we're all about. All right, great news, uh, I think, for everybody, not only Raptors fans, just to see some sort of action going on. And it's great to have sports back in uh, in Canada, in Ontario, and specifically last night with the Raptors having, having their home opener. And, boy, you can imagine how both team and fans are feeling after uh, what they've gone through through a global pandemic. Uh, unfortunately, uh, great to see them there, but uh, didn't come out with a win, falling to Washington uh, by a score of 98 to 83 to talk more about it all of this let's bring in manny rao staff writer and host with raptors republic raptorsrepublic.com to find out more and he's with us now manny thanks for the time hope you're well 
Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me on. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. So, uh, obviously not a win, but does it matter just simply to have the team back? Uh, not, not, it doesn't matter to me, honestly. I, I am happy to have the team back. I think, you know, all of Toronto, all of Canada, all of Ontario is buzzing. Uh, you know, last season for the Raptors, uh, spending that in Tampa Bay was really, really tough for them. It was mentally challenging. It was emotionally draining. And I think, uh, you know, them being in Toronto really does, uh, get the city into a different kind of uh, spirit. You know, you can see it from last night. Everybody was so happy to have them back, uh, especially it was the, I think, the first time three Canadians had taken the court for the Raptors uh, in franchise history at the same time. So very cool. Uh, well, uh, we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, you know, you said the emotional and the draining, the fatigue. I mean, we've all felt it during a global pandemic. Some may say, well, these are professional athletes, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, the general manager also uh, addressed this last night. This is tough considering all of the travel and the protocol they have to go through. It wasn't an easy year for them, was it? No, not at all. Uh, and that's the thing, right? They're, uh, they're a team that's used to playing, you know, outside of the United States and their home is in Toronto, Canada. So, um, it's very, it's very nice to have them back. And it's, it's nice for the players to get that, uh, love from the crowd as well, you know, having people have their back. It's almost like a whole country has their back, right? And talk about the Canadians on the court last night. So, yeah, the Raptors, uh, it was the first time in franchise history that they had three Canadians on the court at the same time. Chris Boucher, Ken Birch, and Delano Banton, who actually, uh, the Raptors made the first ever uh, Canadian to be drafted by the Raptors uh, this past summer uh, in the NBA draft. And uh, he's also Delano Banton, a Rexdale native. So uh, he got a loud ovation during the intros. And then uh, he also ended up coming off the bench and providing a spark for them in the fourth quarter. Uh, yeah, great shot. Um, we, we certainly hear about that in hockey in Canada. You know, people playing, kids growing up watching their team, playing for it, whatever. But in the NBA, it's a whole different level. It's a whole different thing. And nothing against the NHL or hockey or any of that. It must have been an absolute buzz to be out there for them. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, you know, I, I can relate having not grown taller than, you know, maybe 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, um, I can only imagine what they think, uh, you know, what was going through their heads when they were playing, uh, you know, for their home team and they were playing their favorite sports. Uh, it, it must have been, you know, insane to them. And obviously not as common as it is in other sports like hockey. So, I mean, it's a big thing for Canadians. Oh, exactly, 100%. You know, it's 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 good for them. Uh, to de- definitely represent the Raptors and, you know, know that they're representing Toronto and Canada as a whole as well. So talk about this team. Obviously not the same team that played here uh, last time uh, they were in Toronto. Like, there's like four vets left on the team. Uh, is the biggest challenge going to be youth? Uh, it definitely will be youth. It's going to be patience as well. Uh, you know, there's, as you said, four four players uh, who were left on the team from the Raptors last played in Toronto, a regular season game. That uh, was February 2020. Um, it's Chris Boucher, Fred Van Vliet, Pascal Siakam, and OG Ananobi. Those are the four players. And uh, the rest of the team is brand new. Uh, we didn't bring anybody else back. And, um, you know, it's, it's going to be a challenge uh, because these four players have already won a championship. Now they are going to be depended upon to lead younger players to a championship uh, in the future. So uh, it's going to be a challenge. And I mean, it's going to be a challenge for the fans as well to, you know, to, to endure that. But it's going to be worth it. I think so.
Talk about Coach Nurse and and the handle he has on this team. And obviously, Toronto loves him, uh, and, and the Raptors do. I mean, he's continuing to coach there. Uh, many have said he's very unique, a little off-center. Uh, talk about the relationship he has with these players, especially new ones coming in. So, yeah, Nick Nurse, um, for those of for those of you that don't know, he is uh, probably one of the most unorthodox coaches. And I mean that in a great way because he's willing to experiment with his lineups and his rotations. He's willing to put players in different positions than uh, what you're used to seeing on a basketball court. Uh, you know, a lot of the times you hear about basketball and positionless basketball these days. And uh, he definitely is somebody that uh, has taken that uh, into consideration when he develops his systems. And, you know, he, he, also has the respect of the locker room. Um, you know, he's a great, great uh, leader for these these young guys and a great leader for these uh, veterans as well. He's coached all around the world. He's won uh, championships in Britain. He's, co- he's coached in the NBA's uh, Developmental League, the G League, and he's won a championship there uh, with the Raptors 905 as well. And, uh, yeah, now he's, he's won a championship with the Raptors two years ago. And so he's done it all, and, and he's, he's the guy – uh, to take us to the next level, or to take the Raptors to the next level, for sure. So, so what is the next level, Manny? What can you honest, honestly expect out of this team this year? So this year, I would advise everybody to uh, maybe tamper your expectations. Uh, the team is not going to be as good as they've been uh, over the past, like from 2014 till about uh, 2020. Uh, it's going to be a developing team. A lot of the mistakes that are going to be made may be frustrating, but uh, I also cautious caution you to uh, to to know that you know who we are. The team is not going to be a championship caliber team. It's going to be a young developing team, uh, probably at the bottom of the pack or middle of the pack of the Eastern Conference in the NBA. So just tamper your expectations, everybody. Hey, Manny. At the end of the day, I think Toronto's used to that. If you know what I mean. So I think they should have a little bit of patience, perhaps for the. Uh, for the Raptors over time. Manny Rao with a staff writer and host with Raptors Republic, raptorsrepublic.com to find out more. Manny, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You too. So uh, Facebook is looking to rebrand, in other words, change its name, which seems kind of odd considering it is such an identifiable brand. But when you consider the uh, bad publicity they've got of late, perhaps it is the time to do that. However, is it better to change your name or just perhaps work on your product? and give people what they want, as opposed to, oh, yeah, forget Facebook. That's a day gone by. This is face back. <laughs> uh, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa PR, and she is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott, and that was pretty funny, I have to say. So touche to you. Why Why would you change your name? If you know, I mean, when Coke goofed up and got rid of the old Coke, they didn't change their name. Uh, well, I guess they did. They called it Old Coke, New Coke, or whatever, Classic Coke, what have you. So I guess they did do that. But why would, is this a good strategic plan for them, or is it just a case of they want to get away from the bad publicity of late? Well, I think you just hit the nail on the head. And sometimes the best way to change the channel is to come up with something so outlandish that it will be all that anybody is talking about. And in this case, it was a wholesale name change. But I think there's a lot of things behind it, Scott. So first of all, 
you know, Facebook has just taken a lashing uh, as of late, you know, with you know, the fact that, the, you know, teenage studies show that teenage girls have uh, feel bad about themselves when they're on Facebook and Instagram, and they're getting a whole spate of bad publicity. So, you know, what do you do? Well, change the channel. How do we change the channel? Let's change the name. And so by getting the getting people to stop talking about bad Facebook and changing the name is actually something that corporations have done before. You know, you may recall that back uh, way back, uh, BP Petroleum t- changed their name when they, they had all, you know, yeah. they changed their name just to like BP Amoco and then BP. So, you know, companies have done this before and they've only done it in the face of extreme, extreme fire. And that's exactly what Facebook is doing right now. Will that work though? Providing the new Facebook two is exactly the same as Facebook one. You know, it's interesting because now they're calling it the metaverse. Yeah, as if it's something else now. Word, and it's like, okay, well, if you thought I had the whole world, now I want everything else beyond the world, into the stratosphere. I want the metaverse, says Mark Zuckerberg. So, yeah, let's change the name. Let's go beyond the boundaries of Facebook and what it is, and let's create something that's so big, has so many tentacles, that we're practically untouchable. Uh, does he or will people realize, customers realize, this is nothing about the name, it's about uh, Mark Zuckerberg and the company, and it's the same thing? Like, why, like, for example, are, are we feeling the same backlash with Instagram as we are with Facebook, considering it's all the same? You know, it's interesting, Scott. When I, when Will first pitched me this story and I looked at it and I just thought, you know, Facebook is all, almost has like a bit of a Teflon coating around them. No yeah. matter how bad it gets. No matter whether Zuckerberg is in conference, is in Congress facing the worst of the worst questions and just sits there and takes it, it all just bounces off of him. So for him, it's just another day at the office. Yeah, maybe this isn't optimal. Maybe that we're suffering from a little bit of bad news now, but I'm still going to go on and I really don't care. So, you know, with that type of attitude, Facebook just seems to you know, let this this bad news and maybe some of their bad reputational narratives just bounce on them and they keep plowing forward and plowing ahead. And yet we allow them to. So there are the people who are disgusted by the behavior of Facebook, disgusted by the way they raise money um, and the way they uh, get in their ad revenues and what they use as clickbait. But for the most part, all the rest of the people who are on Facebook every day posting and interacting about their recipes and their workouts, they really don't care. And is there any blowback? Is there any blowback with Instagram? I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, why one and not the other? And I guess, well, gee whiz, uh, if you know we're the same company and that name's working and this one's not, clearly that's the issue. Well, maybe that what they don't want to do is split the brands anymore. So you have Facebook and you have Instagram. But when you pop up Instagram on your phone, what does it say? It says Instagram by Facebook. Yeah. So it's like, okay, Mark, we get it. We know, we know, you own it. But maybe as they split off more brands and maybe absorb other platforms, they don't want to continue saying, you know, Instagram by Facebook, new platform by Facebook. Instead, rebrand it all under the same umbrella. And this way you're not diluting the brand or trying to splinter it off. It'll all come under one brand.
Will the public not see uh, by all this? Oh, no. The, uh, some will, and most won't care, because it'll be the new thing. It'll be yeah. the new TikTok. It'll be the new, because Facebook doesn't own TikTok, right? You bring up a valid and, point. So this is this is less about the old brand and what it represents. This is the fact that we're spending all of our time now looking at this new shiny thing. Exactly. And what will yeah. this new shiny thing absorb? And what will yeah. this new shiny thing bring us? And that's yeah. what we're going to jump on. Wow. Uh, what about Donald Trump uh, starting his own uh, his own social media platform? Any thoughts on that as I leave you? Well, no. I mean, I, th- I think that that is not a surprise at all. He's been muzzled by all the other social media platforms, and he has his base. And they'll all go on it, and they'll all want to listen to what he has to say. The only worries about muzzling to Donald Trump is that you don't know what he's thinking. And it's been kind of a nice, quiet, you know, few years since. Yeah. However, maybe we should know what he's thinking. Maybe we should know what he's planning. And this way, it'll still give us sort of a, a little peek into his mind. Good point. Alyssa Freeman with us. Alyssa PR, pop culture expert. Alyssa, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. And thanks for having me, Scott. You be well, too. Have a good life. We will see you soon. Catch up on the news and information you've missed. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. So far, we have Saskatchewan, Ontario, Quebec, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, and all three territories, Nunavut, uh, Northwest Territories, and Yukon, who already have put into use the national standard for proof of vaccination. All other provinces have uh, agreed and are working hard to come online so that uh, as Canadians look to start traveling again, there will be a standardized proof of vaccination certificate that, as we said, uh, we will be uh, picking up the tab for at the federal level to ensure that all provinces uh, are able to do it. Justin Trudeau talking earlier at a news conference today on a federal vaccine passport plan uh, that will rely on the uh, provincial governments and the vaccine certificate programs uh, that the majority of the provinces are already doing uh, is obviously this seems like a uh, what we're trying to do here is come up with one universal system underneath all of these umbrellas. It looks like that does this. However, have we done it backwards? Should we have been doing this consulting before the provinces put theirs in place? Let's bring Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert. He is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Same to you. Thanks for having me. So your thoughts, uh, Ahmad, on the vaccine passport. Uh, do we do we have two here? How is this going to work? Because uh, it seems as if uh, the federal system is, is using the provincial system to bring it all together. Basically, the way I would explain it to my students, the same way I'll explain it here, which is that the federal government is like mom and dad, and they're paying the bills of their kids and the kids in this case are the provinces and so Mm. the federal government is basically letting the provinces run the current systems they have i mean technically scott every province in the country now has its own sort of vaccination certificate that all look very similar and that they have the same information the number of doses that you've received your date of birth your qr code Uh, and so what the federal government has done is instead of reinventing the wheel they decided to pay the bill if some provinces need additional funding which which they've done in the past. We call it cash contributions by the federal government from a policy perspective. And they're leaving the provinces to sort of make sure that the people in that province have the appropriate documentation, in this case, a vaccine passport. 
So I guess my question here is, doctor, is that document going to come from the province or from the feds? So in other words, are we going to see our existing provincial certificate with then now some sort of federal seal to it and in addition to it? Or are we going to see, uh, like your travel passport, uh, a separate document with the province's stuff on it? From what it seems to the announcement today is that what the federal government is going to do is two things. A, pay the bill for the provinces that, can, that need the financial support, but primarily they're going to play the role of federal government. And in this case, it's promoting the vaccine passports that provinces are issuing, the ones you and I by now have that we can download on Ontario's website, uh, in our international platform. So what does that mean? That means that the next time you travel outside of Canada, the federal government will be working with outside governments, whether it's the U.S., the U.K., or any other country out there, to ha- help them recognize the different passports issued by the provinces, with the idea there that most provinces will follow a very similar format. So if you're getting a vaccine passport from Ontario, it shouldn't look that much different from one from British Columbia. And the federal government's role and responsibility is to promote this vaccine passport on an international platform. So, uh, and correct me if I'm, because I'm trying to make this as simple as I can, Ahmad. So this is like, for example, uh, the federal government saying, all right, here is a, uh, a template or here is a platform with every single province's, um, uh, uh, I guess, protocol on board and vaccination status and such. So just like when you go to a restaurant or a store, you can use these various credit cards to pay for your purchase as a vaccine passport for Canadians. They can use any one of these twelve in order to to get to get allowed into another country. Is that accurate? You did a very good job of simplifying what I was trying to say. So thank you for doing that, Scott. That's exactly it. So with the- I'm a simple person, Ahmad. I, I, I usually find the simple way out. But anyway, I, I'm just trying to sort of capsulize it for everybody. So these are accepted under the federal platform. Correct. And so I think what the federal government probably suspects that they did was that they looked at what countries outside of Canada are looking for. And what countries outside of Canada are looking for is that they want your date of birth, they want how many doses and when you got them, and they want a QR code so they can scan it. That's what most countries around the world right now are requiring of travelers. And so then they looked at what provinces are already issuing, and they probably saw that they're all issuing that in, in similar formats. So they might have a change of font or where they place the information, but they all have the same information on that certificate. So they probably just figured, why reinvent the wheel? Why issue another certificate when all we can we have to do is just make sure that the world understands that this is what Canada does? And actually, if you look at international news, you'll see that uh, major international organizations, news organizations around the world have picked up the story and are, are showcasing what Canadian certificates would look like. So should that being said, because we all know uh, that we just came out of an election and that kind of s- slowed everything down a bit because there's not so much you can do within the federal government during an election campaign, would this have been better to do it in the reverse? In other words, come up with the with the federal credentials and then tell all the provinces, okay, it's got to look like this. I wish I wish things were that easy on a policy level in Canada. <laughs> As you know, the federal government is, uh, you know, within arm's length of healthcare delivery. And so the provinces are the ones who are uh, in charge of delivering healthcare. And so the minute you the federal government starts to step into that jurisdiction, you have a jurisdictional war. And I think that's what the federal government is trying to prevent from happening. To answer your question from a policy perspective, yes, a pan-Canadian federally mandated uh, vaccine passport that looks exactly identical across the country is ideal. 
will it happen within our context? No, because our healthcare system and the way our policies are set right. do not allow for that. So really, in the end, we will have a provincial-issued vaccine certificate, and then it will have some sort of federal code on it that links it to international travel in, in, in other jurisdictions. A better way of saying that would be that we will have a provincial vaccine certificate approved by the federal government. I okay, don't think perfect. that the federal government is going to step in and reissue vaccine certificates. Right. I'll be very surprised. I think all they're going to say is, we approve the Ontario passport. You could travel with it. Right. So in the end, uh, doctor, after, you know, all of this is is done and the bugs are worked out, this should be quite a wholesome system, should it not? Yes. I, in an ideal world, this should work very smoothly. I've downloaded my certificate. I can tell you that it has all the information required for you to travel to major destinations around the world. Dr. Ahmad Khalid with us, health policy expert, talking about the new federally announced vaccine passport plan, which will hook up with the individual provinces uh, to blanket the country. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Same to you. Thank you. Will on the board and Ken and Diana in the newsroom and around the big round table, as uh, we uh, always do at this time of the show. Uh, feel free to jump into the fun. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221. Start 9900 on your cell. We're going to start on the table with the poll question. And I want to read you a note here. And the poll question of the day is, are you feeling the crunch of inflation? 90% of you uh, are saying. Yes, here's an interesting note I got from a listener. Good afternoon, Scott. I am feeling the crunch of uh, the inflation rate. I wouldn't say it's a crime, more of a complete crushing of all dreams and ambitions. Prior to the pandemic, I was $2,000 away from a down payment on a house. In the last few years, I've gone from being able to afford a home, a house on my own, to not even qualifying for the mortgage. I can't even afford to rent a new place anymore, and I make 30 bucks an hour. Uh, a typical response that we're getting, uh, and of course the roundtable, Ken Mann, Diana Weeks, Will Erskine with us now. I'm going to start with the poll question of the day. We'll start with you, Diana. Are you feeling the crunch of the inflation? Yeah, I think so. Um, in terms of uh, filling up for gas, that's <laughs> feeling no. the pinch there for sure. Um, and also just in the grocery store a lot too with uh, meat prices, uh, especially like beef has gone up a lot, I found. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like really seeing it on the shelves and uh, I haven't ad- crunched numbers on how much we're actually spending more, but I would imagine that will not make, that will not make you feel any no, better. No, I know. I know. I know. <laughs> Maybe let's not do that. I, I should say 32% of this is fuel. Ken, what are your thoughts? Are you feeling the crunch already or do you need uh, an announcement for that? Well, first of all, an ouch on that uh, letter you read that that's, uh, yeah. that's heartbreaking stuff right there. And I mean, that really, that really highlights the impact on people who are trying to look to, to buy a house in this market, right? I mean, the prices mm-hmm. of houses, we've seen, we've seen the inflation numbers there. And that's just crushing, as she said. And uh, yeah, you see the numbers. For me, it's mainly in the grocery store yeah. where, where I'm seeing it, especially produce and, and meats and, and those types of, really anything that needs to be transported, I suppose. But yeah, that's, that's the big, that's that's Are where I surprised? really am noticing it the most. Not so much at the gas pump because I'm kind of in a lucky situation where I don't have to drive as much as I normally would. So um, that one I can kind of weather. Uh, do you get the feeling that uh, this is the recovery just from the pandemic? Well, obviously, it's more than just the recovering of the pandemic. But we remember during the pandemic, I think prices were below a dollar a, a liter for, for gasoline. Uh, did you expect it to go this high? 
I, I don't think I did, but I, I, I got to admit, I don't really understand what drives fuel prices. I've yeah. tried for years to understand this, and and I, I can never quite get my head around what causes fuel prices to rise or fall. Well, they never fall, but rise <laughs> the and way only, they do. Only if there's a global pandemic, Ken. Yeah, that, that's right. <laughs> and, and, I, and I feel like the oil-producing nations are probably playing a bit of a game here as well. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, so there's so many factors. Are you feeling the crunch, Will? Yeah, and it's kind of like Diana has started creeping up on me. I did actually notice it while buying meat a while back, but the main gauge for it all is the gas prices, yes. All right, uh, the federal government announcing a vaccine passport. We talked about this uh, several months ago, but of course there was an election in the midst. Now it appears that rather than coming up with a separate system, they're going to sort of put their seal of approval and take all of the vaccine passports from across the country, from the various uh, provinces, put that on on a federal platform, uh, which allows, and, and I guess the, the the explanation I used for, for Dr. Khalid was, it's kind of like going to a store and, and you can use multiple ways of paying, whether it's uh, debit, whether it's credit, or however very, very uh, different credit cards. And these are the ones that, that we, uh, I guess, accept. Uh, do we need a provincial passport now that we have a federal? Um, I guess that question has been answered now that the feds have piggybacked on the provincial passport. Do you think we did this the easiest way? Should it have been done the other way around? I'll start with you, Diana. Uh, I don't know. I think it should have been from the top down first, from the federal yeah. government. Um, just regulating this in general for all the provinces and territories would have been much easier. Um, I mean, it's it's just really fragmented and there's a lot of its inconsistencies from province to province, I think. And I think we needed this. I think, I don't know, I think that the rollout, you know, they're saying late November, early December, I don't think it's going to happen. I think there's going to be, you know, obviously holdups there, but we'll be hopeful and we'll see. (laughs) I think this is a discussion we should have had instead of having a federal election, because that is what has delayed all of this. What are your thoughts on the federal vaccine passport, Ken? Well, yeah, I I mean, it certainly makes sense to have a federal program here that standardize everything across the country and make things easier that way. I think really the big question going forward and and the certainty we need as Canadians is to ensure that whatever federal vaccine passport we have is going to be recognized by all other countries, especially the United States, but anywhere that Canadians like to travel to or need to travel to for, for business. All right. I want to get on to Facebook because we certainly know what has happened uh, with them in the last several days, weeks. Uh, it, it just hasn't been a good time for them. A lot of bad publicity, especially around the whistleblower and and, and Facebook preying on, on teens and such. Uh, they have announced that they're talking about changing their name. Do you think that's going to solve their problems? Uh, and, and as well, Facebook's a pretty strong brand now. Would you want to change that, Diana? No, I don't think so. I don't know what we're doing here with this. Like, I mean, just leave it. Is it, it as just a is. distraction? I think it's a distraction. A distraction. It's totally a distraction. But I mean, I'm just done with the whole Mark Zuckerberg thing. Like, you yeah. know, we know, you know, you've got Facebook, and now we're trying to like. I, I don't really understand what they're trying to do. Um, but when I, I'll, I will reiterate that when Facebook did crash. A few weeks ago, it was very nice. <laughs> to... Are you on Instagram as well? Because that's basically the same thing. It's yeah, the same company. I'm on Instagram a lot more than I'm on Facebook. Um, but does it make you feel better because you're on a different platform, or does it make you feel just as bad thinking it's it's all part of Facebook? No, I could do without Facebook to be honest. I yeah. I don't 
really see the point of Facebook. I mean, there's groups on Facebook that I'm part of that I would miss, you know, but as for the general posting on the wall and all that stuff, I... I don't know. Ken, Ken, are you involved with the Parrothead Facebook group? <laughs> uh, yes, I, I am a member of a few of them, in fact. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the name change? Uh, to be honest, you know what? I wasn't even aware of this until you brought it up. There you go. <laughs> so, right. uh, you know, I, I don't know what that says about me. But, I, I mean, I'm just on there you know looking what? for it, updates it says... on what's going on in my friends' lives and pictures of, of whatever they're up to at the moment. And I, I don't really, you know, and the rest of this stuff is just uh, is just wallpaper. What it says, uh, Ken Man, about you is you're a smart person because you don't get involved in all of this crap. What are your thoughts on uh, this, Will? Will a name change uh, make everybody feel better? No. In fact, it's making me feel worse because it seems like they're trying to hide something. Uh, and it, I know it's because they want to branch out into uh, virtual reality and goggles and tablets and all sorts of things. They got all these products lined up, but we already see how they handle their safety and their impact on society with their products. So... No, I, I don't think it's going to do much for the PR, and it's uh, not making me uh, forget any of what they've done yet. And this is what Alyssa, uh, Alyssa pointed out, Alyssa Freeman, saying that, you know, if, if you look, hey, there's something really shiny and new over here, you'll look less at what the old one was, and I think that's what the idea is here. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Hamilton continuing to be on the healthcare cutting edge. Hamilton St. Joseph's Healthcare is home to another big step forward as we move through a global pandemic with Ontario's first antibody clinic for those who have contracted COVID-19. To talk more about all of this and what it means, Dr. Zane Chagla with us, infectious disease specialist with St. Joseph's Hospital and an associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Department of Medicine, McMaster University. University. And with us now, Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, what I love about this is it's moving beyond where we were in the first and second wave and the future and a post-pandemic world, hopefully. What is the purpose or objective of this clinic? Explain to everybody what you're doing here. Yeah. So, you know, one of the biggest parts of our immune system that fights viruses is the antibodies. And the antibodies are what tag to the virus when it gets into our body. It triggers our immune system to clear the virus. It protects our cells from being invaded from the viruses. And so when you're infected with COVID-19, eventually you develop antibodies, although it takes about a week or so. And in that time, people can recover or get seriously ill if they don't get antibodies enough in time to prevent the virus from causing mayhem. When you get vaccinated, you pre- you make you know huge numbers of antibodies, which are there to protect you from A, getting COVID-19, but B, even if you do get COVID-19, protect you from getting seriously ill. But we do know there's a subset of people who may not get vaccinated uh, or, you know, don't respond well to vaccines that, uh, you know, giving them antibodies in general, like a, a synthetic amount of antibodies, uh, is able to kind of boost their immune system to deal with the COVID-19 when they're infected. And so there are a number of drugs on the market. Canada has acquired two, and we're currently using one, and hopefully we'll use the other in the next few weeks. Um, we're given to patients early with COVID-19 that don't have pre-existing antibodies and are at high risk of hospitalization. The data suggests we can take the rate of hospitalization down by 70% in those individuals, which is pretty astounding considering, again, you know, healthcare capacity is our biggest thing for this pandemic. So this is for patients who have already contracted the disease. So in other words, uh, I guess my next question is, why not give the antibody instead of the vaccine? Yeah, so, I mean, again, your your, your immune system is, is trained to actually 
develop antibodies. And so it's yeah. much better to be triggering your immune system, your natural process to develop antibodies, right. because we do a whole lot more. We develop antibodies to more targets. It's a whole lot more robust. This is really to one little piece of the protein. Yes, it works really well, but it's not as potent as, as your own antibodies. And so that's why vaccine is still much more important than getting this, but this is a nice backup for us to keep healthcare capacity still maintained. Many have said that if they've contracted it or what have you, they've developed an immunity. Is that accurate? Yeah, at some point, you know, it, the, 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 the disease really has two outcomes. One is, you know, your body eventually does develop immunity. It clears the virus and, and, and you know, people recover, which is the, thankfully the vast majority of people. The other is, you know, your immune response takes too much time. You, it, it goes aberrant and there's a right. lot of inflammation and that's what leads to people coming to hospital. And our treatments at that point are really not for shutting down the virus. The viruses are usually clearing out. It's really directed to shutting down the immune system at that point in time because it's doing too much damage to those individuals. We've certainly heard of the long haulers and those that have had difficulty after contracting this disease and, and for all intents and purposes, getting over it. What's it like to get over this? What it, is it always tough? Is it as easy as a flu? What's it like recovering? Yeah, there's there's a huge spectrum. And, and part of our clinical care now is, is this, right? There's people that, you know, recover very easily within a few days. There's people that take a few weeks. There's people that take a few months. There's people that are still disabled six months later after I'm seeing them. And, you know, there is a wide spectrum of presentations here. It's just that's so much more important, though, that we at least reduce the severity, as there seems to be an association with many of these longer symptoms with having more severe disease, being hospitalized, needing, needing ICU stay, and the complications from that. So, again, you know, getting vaccinated is the number one, two, three, four, and five steps. Yeah. Uh, but us having interventions to start limiting the disease if it's out of control and people that are still susceptible is also an important step moving forward. So will we see more of these types of clinics, or yeah, does absolutely. it depend how the disease progresses? No, I, I, this is now a, the World Health Organization recommended therapy. This is now an Ontario Science Table. It's recommended in the United States. Um, there are a number of these therapies coming to the market. Really, they've been around for a little bit of time, but they haven't really gotten the data until the last few months. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think you're going to see this more and more as we have, you know, a, a need to, to prevent hospitalization, even in the context of a highly vaccinated cohort. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, becoming more and more a standard of care. And, and in the United States, the UK, and other parts of the world, this is routine care for some individuals. And, I, I, you know, this is us starting to catch up and, and get back to, you know, again, using all the tools that we have available in the chest to mitigate the, the damage from this disease. And this will work for another pandemic, heaven forbid. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, passive antibody therapy we use every day for other conditions. If you get bitten by a rabid raccoon, you know, the first thing you do is you go to the emergency room, they give you antibodies to rabies to prevent the virus from spreading. So, yeah. you know, the, the antibodies have roles in many diseases. Uh, and again, they're, they're easy therapies to synthesize because all you have to do is look at what humans do and then just reproduce that in the lab. Dr. Zane Chagla with us, infectious disease specialist with St. Joseph's Hospital and associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Department of Medicine at McMaster University. Hamilton St. Joseph's Healthcare, home to 
uh, a new uh, a new antibody, the first antibody clinic in Ontario that uh, for people who have contracted COVID nineteen. Uh, congratulations, great work moving forward. It's amazing how we have seen uh, all of these heads working together and the progress that we've made in the last year and a half, doctor. It must be mesmerizing to you. Yeah, absolutely. And I get very thankful for where we are a year later to have more tools, to have vaccines, again, to to learning how to live with this thing a whole lot more day by day. Dr. Zane Chagla, thanks so much. Good luck. No problem. All the best. Uh, as soon as they can get the go-ahead from the Federal Drug Administration, and that could be uh, as early as two weeks, while Prime Minister Trudeau said that the Canada is similar, similarly prepared for Health Canada's approval but urged Canadians to be patient. This scares me because he did this last time, and what that meant was uh, it's got nothing to do with Health Canada approving it but the fact that, that we didn't have the supply to bring into the country. Uh, and when you put too much weight in Health Canada, remember what happened with NASI, pretty much contradicting everything that they said. So uh, at the end of the day, I'm hoping that we will have the kids' version of this uh, as soon as possible. Uh, but again, it sounds like the Prime Minister is, is baiting us to get ready that there could be delays, but it's all about Health Canada getting approval. Uh, meanwhile, the FDA uh, could be injecting it very, very soon. Uh, in, in Canada, they're talking about possibly... Uh, possibly by the new year. Uh, it's reported in a CBC article that uh, Canada will receive the vaccine doses from uh, Pfizer, as uh, obviously, and about 2.9 million doses of Pfizer into Canada. He said as soon as possible, although he could be heard telling uh, hospital staff prior to the announcement that it could come uh, by the end of the year. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Rodney Rohde is with us, professor and chair of the Clinical Laboratory Science Program at the College of Health Professions with Texas State University and with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, Scott. Good afternoon. I hope you're doing well as well. Yes, thank you, Rodney. So is it possible you could be injecting those in the U.S., could be ejecting kids as soon as two weeks or just after two weeks? Well, that's what I'm reading, <laughs> like you just mentioned in your announcement. That seems to be the kind of ongoing commentary, at least on the U.S. side of things. I'm not as familiar as what you're dealing with in Canada as of right now today, but I guess because of those um, issues of shipping things and getting things there, that's always going to put a little delay on it. But I'm hoping, you know, here and there we get this thing moving, you know, before the end of the year and hopefully sooner than that. Now, what is the difference between the Canadian, or it's not the Canadian dose, the kids' dose and the adult dose? I understand it's 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 a smaller amount and a different uh, needle. Is that accurate? That is accurate. That is accurate. And then, of course, the other piece of I'm sure you're going to talk about a little bit today is the the announcement of the mixing and matching that's kind of come out of the FDA uh, recently. So we're kind of just now deciphering all of the information around the different combinations that, at least in the U.S., it appears we're going to be moving forward with uh, mixing and maxing of, of that third dose, also a booster dose. Uh, I'd love to hear that information. Obviously, we've been mixing and matching up here because the supply was, was slow to come in and we didn't really have any choice. What are you hearing from the FDA on that? Yeah, so kind of so it gets kind of sticky if you get into the weeds because there's so many different combinations. But basically, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, has been working on a pretty large study, and in fact, it's still ongoing of looking at these. 
And on, I think around October 15th, a group of those individuals um, shared their results uh, with the FDA, and it's not out yet. It's in preprint, but it's still being peer-reviewed and things like that. But from the data I've looked at, they tested about nine different combinations of J&J, Moderna, and Pfizer, and they used about 500 participants or so. And, and the early data is showing that mixing was safe and highly effective and that receiving a booster shot really increased the, the antibodies, the neutralizing antibodies that you know, ultimately bind to that virus and kind of stop it from infecting cells. So without getting into all the details of that study, I guess the big piece of that that really catches my eye is that in those people who received a different booster than their original vaccine series, so if you started with one and then switched, their antibody levels increased. It, they increased always, mm. but they started at a low of about six and went all the way up to 76-fold higher, which is phenomenal. As a result of mixing. did that, Yeah, and the group that did that, and it kind of makes sense, the greatest mm-hmm. increase in those antibody levels was among uh, the group that originally got a J&J vaccine and then got a Moderna a booster on those guys, they jumped 76 fold, which is, which is kind of crazy. That's a huge increase. So originally kind of in my own professional opinion, I'd been telling people, and I still kind of fall into this realm that if you can get the same uh, industry vaccine. So I got Moderna back about eight months ago, seven and a half, eight months ago, and I'll probably stick with that for the booster. But if this data continues to fall out, um, you know, some people may definitely want to get that mRNA booster, especially those J&J hmm. uh, original vaccine folks, because it's just showing a huge, huge jump in um, protection. Now, most experts will tell you, and I, I also agree with this, is J&J probably should have been more than one dose. Yeah, we're just, hearing that. You know, again, Ryan, you know, Scott, if you if you kind of think about it, it, it it's kind of it is what it is. You know, in retrospect, it was so difficult to get vaccine into arms. You know, eight nine months ago, and people yeah. were dying at such a high rate that they wanted an option of a single dose. So at least it got people, you know, to sixty or seventy percent protection, which saved a ton of lives. There's no doubt. But now, you know, in in hindsight, we know that. You know, we really probably need a, another dose of that or another one to get people really boosted. And and if we go down the road of, of some immunology and vaccinology, most other vaccines, if you look at them, typically have longer time periods in between. So even when we started this, you remember Pfizer was three weeks yeah. until the second dose and Moderna was four. I mean, many vaccines wait three months, six months, like the shingles. I'm getting shingles and yeah. my my second dose is going to be six months out because it shows a better boost and it also shows a better ability to have memory. And so, you know, if we weren't in that, in that desperate saving lives mode, I think eight months ago, we probably would have tried to spread those out a little further and given, you know, more than one dose with J and J, but obviously they were trying to save lives as quickly as possible. We've only got a few seconds left here, Doctor. Give us a snapshot of where the U.S. is now. What, what are your thoughts on where you are now? Yeah, I think where we're at right now, and again, it can change by region, but in general, I think we're seeing the Delta variant plateau. 
Uh, we still have cases. It's still something we need to be aware of and, and still be safe and get vaccinated and all the things we've been doing. But we do appear to be plateauing and coming down as we move into November. Um, there's still, you know, there's still concern. There's still deaths occurring and there's still cases, but we're definitely plateauing and coming down. And my hope, Scott, is that, and we've talked about this some before, is that as we move into January, which is really crazy, we're starting our third year on this, um, that it seems like I was just talking to you. <laughs> it's been Yeah, isn't that? And we all said a couple of years started. and nobody, we all said a couple of years and nobody believed that at the time. It's amazing yeah. how this is all, how this has all transpired. Yeah. Dr. Rodney Rodney, I got to cut you off there, doctor. Dr. Rodney Rodney with us. We're out of time. Professor and chair of the Clinical Laboratory Science Program at the College of Health Professions with Texas State University. Doctor, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. Forget about his two cents. Scott has an entire vault filled with opinions. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. All right, earlier on today, the Prime Minister announced uh, the vaccine passport system for international travel, basically linking up or piggybacking on what the uh, uh, provinces have uh, already done. Many said it should have been done the reverse, the feds coming out with something and then uh, the provinces adapting to it. Uh, But obviously there was an election in there and uh, all of this has been delayed somewhat but the good news is things are moving forward let's bring in kaylee align uh, editor journalist media consultant writing about travel and with us now kaylee thanks for the time i hope you're well hey thank you so much for having me your thoughts on what we've heard today and a federal vaccine passport in the works you know what i'm happy you know better late than never because hmm. For us coming from different provinces and territories, a centralized system will make international travel a lot easier. I think we already run into issues. Like I know I have in the past when you're traveling and you're trying to use your provincial identification and at bars, they might not take the Ontario driver's license, but they'll take your passport. So having something on this magnitude when we talk about vaccine will just make it a little bit more internationally recognized and take those headaches away when we're dealing with international travel and border crossings. From what I know about this platform, it will take everything that the provinces have already done and uh, put it on sort of under an umbrella with a with a, a, a government uh, certification to it. Much like if you go into a department store, they'll accept all these many different types of credit cards for the same thing. Do you see that as something that will be compatible with travel in other countries, other nations uh, around the world? I think so. And I think that's what we're seeing internationally, too, is that they're taking a nationwide approach versus divisionally, provincially, um, statewide. So I think it's really, really important for us to have a centralized system so that us as travelers, us as the average population, we're not dealing with the headaches on the road, whether it is, you know, another country not knowing your system or having to explain that. Um, one of the big issues we run into in Canada is that we were given kind of whatever <laughs> vaccines were available. Yeah. So for many of us, we didn't get the same vaccine, so we'll run into less hiccups when it comes to that because they'll be federally recognized. And I think it'll just make it easier for recognition, but our own um, peace of mind when it comes to international travel. Will this, in your mind, ease uh, anxiety, ease fear, uh, get more people onto planes traveling generally? You know, and I think that there's still fear and anxiety and unknown when it comes to the pandemic. We're by no means out of the pandemic, but I think this will make potentially if people need to travel internationally, whether that is personally, professionally, potentially visiting family, they're able to do so with a little bit more ease. So at least, you know, you still have 
all the other stressors, this is one less thing for you to worry about, or it becomes a little bit easier for you to figure out how to approach international travel and you know, do that digging on your own. How are Canadians feeling about travel? Are the, are the plane loads going up? Are we getting back into it? No, I think we see a lot more domestic travel, which is really, really good in terms of our kind of tourism recovery and um, putting money into our own economy. From just speaking with family and friends, a lot of people discovering more about our own country that they might not have, might not have in the past. You know, I have family members who did a road trip out east this summer, and I've seen people, mm. you know, head over to the Rockies to explore that a little further, or going to BC and other provinces. So I think that's really, really great to see people exploring the country. But I think that, especially as the weather starts to turn, it's getting a little colder. We are looking internationally for warm weather travel and trying to figure out how to navigate that in the safest way possible. Are we seeing as many planes in the sky as we did pre-pandemic? Are we not there yet? I think, you know, you're starting to see the routes pick up. There's been some really, really exciting announcements from Air Canada about remaining international routes um, and bringing them back in. We've had some really exciting launches from, you know, low-cost airlines like Swoop, um, diving into more of the Caribbean and southern markets, which is really, really good for the winter travel. So I, I think we're seeing the airlines responding to that growing demand and really trying to figure out how to, you know, get people safely to the destinations and back into the swing of traveling like they used to. Uh, many thought that when this ended, it would kind of be like the Roaring Twenties. Are you expecting that? You know what? I think we thought that this was going to be a lot shorter <laughs> than yeah. it was. Yeah, good point. I think it's longer and longer and the variance and how, um, you know, this seems like the end is hopefully in sight, but it's we're not quite there yet. I don't know if we're going to see that roaring tra- um, 20s or that revenge travel that everyone talks about, but I do think you have an overall sense that people just want to go back to normal or whatever the new normal is and get back out there and get back to, you know, living their life. All right, Kaylee, what about insurance? Because we've heard so much, especially during the first couple of waves of this pandemic, uh, that some insurance companies were not covering you if you uh, had some sort of exposure to COVID-19. How essential is is insurance now if you're traveling? You know, I think it's still important to get insurance um, and speak to your insurance provider to really understand what is and is not covered in the plan, whether that's medical insurance, travel insurance in general, or even just emergency kind of insurance to have. You can get that through a variety of ways, through your bank, through your credit card, through third-party providers. But I think having insurance is something that we took for granted when we traveled before and that we mm. really, really think about it now um, and put that into kind of practice of just you know, the, the, the new checklist before you go and including that on that list. And what about costs? Are we going to see, because I remember a few months ago there was some good deals, whatever. Are we going to see that continue or have prices pretty much rebounded? Yeah, you're kind of seeing a mixture. You're seeing some competitive pricing, whether it comes to airline pricing or hotels, you know, really interesting deals um, when it comes to cancellation policies and what's being made available. But where you're seeing kind of deals in certain sectors, you have that, those hidden costs, whether that becomes testing, health and safety, um, and, you know, the, those re-entry requirements. You know, I just got a note from the Langham Hotels and Resorts in the U.S. because, you know, that reopening is coming quite soon. And there are really, have really, really beautiful hotels in Boston and New York. And they're trying to have that competitive edge of having a worry-free winter. So offering flexible rates when it comes to cancellation policies, 
um, and making it easier for travelers in case things have to cha- uh, change last minute. But, you know, I think it's budgeting in a different way. So while you have your flights and your attractions and your um, hotels, it's also thinking of, you know, what testing is required and should you have to quarantine, what is your backup plan for those two weeks or whatever it may be. So we've talked insurance and all that sort of thing. If people are considering venturing back out, uh, what is the one tip or a tip you can give them uh, flying in a post-COVID world? Yeah, I think it's, you know, stay safe, wear your mask, pack your sanitizers and keep apart. I think that, you know, we're seeing it on the up and up where there's hope in the horizon, but we still want to be safe and we want to be respectful to other passengers. So whether that's you know, people are a little bit more on edge or stressed coming back into the new normal, or everyone have just, has different boundaries when it comes to proximity of people and what they're comfortable with. You know, I think it's just being respectful, keeping your distance, and just approaching it in a, in a really positive way. Kaylee Align has been with us, editor, journalist, media consultant, writing about the travel industry as it starts to pick up again now that a federal vaccine passport has been announced, hopefully. Kaylee, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Has a supply chain crisis and uh, shutting down of our energy industry put us and the world into an energy crisis, which in the end may set us backwards if we're taking for more coal now? Uh, let's bring in Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy and a former Liberal MP. He is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thanks for having me, Scott. I have a feeling I know where this discussion is going, but let me read you some headlines here from the CBC talking about a global energy crunch, uh, issues in China and in Russia, Uh, CTV talking about climate and the environment and Canadian jobs that have become vulnerable uh, in the transition, the Globe and Mail uh, article on Canada needs a new playbook on climate change and the challenge moving forward. Um, Why do we find ourselves in a global energy crunch right now? Because I think we've put too much emphasis on the transition, uh, the Great Reset, the uh, Build Back Better, and not enough on reality. It's good to aspire to these things. I mean, we all realize we can always do better and we want to do better for the next generation. But you can't do that by destroying this generation, which is precisely what has been happening on a dramatic and wide uh, and, and very perceptible scale. There is no debate that uh, countries like uh, the UK, uh, Germany, uh, now even the United States and their view that they should somehow go after fossil fuels, go and uh, hogtie the uh, the hydrocarbon sector, uh, deny it its funding, uh, try to remove uh, the ability for infrastructure to uh, to allow energy to get to markets has now created a global energy crisis. And this is the reason, of course, Scott, we're going to be paying a buck fifty a liter uh, right here in Hamilton tomorrow, uh, and uh, at a time in which. Uh, you know, under normal circumstances, uh, all forms of energy should be a lot cheaper for Canadians as it should be for the rest of the world, uh, recognizing, of course, the great strides that have been made in ensuring that uh, we have uh, sustainable and responsible outcomes. But uh, I, the point here, I think, is that we, this is overdone. And so, this is not funny anymore. People are going to have to start to recognize you can't continue down this road of killing the very thing that has given us not just affordability, but has sustained human life as we understand it and uh, our ability to control and to mo- to uh, uh, to manage I think it's going to be very important going forward but reality is now setting in and uh, folks are going to have to decide whether or not uh, you know uh, this this false 
sense of having to raise prices dramatically, destroy demand, is a very smart and wise thing to do for a population of 7.5 billion on this planet. And whenever I have you on, Dan, I'll always get a message from someone that says, you know, uh, fossil fuel burning pigs just don't see anything, blah, blah, blah. But why is this discussion always had in the extremes? It's not that you're not realizing we don't need to transition. It's the way in which we're transitioning. And I think that just makes people skeptical about all of this stuff. Yeah, well, it's transitioning to what? I mean, there's nothing at the end of this. You know, if you want to put all your efforts in saying windmills and solar panels are the way to go, then talk to our friends in the UK. More importantly, none of those things can be realized without hydrocarbons. You know, you want to drive an EV, that's great, but who the heck makes them? And how but we're even talking about, you know, uh, natural gas instead of burning uh, dirtier coal, which we may see in the United States. Well, that's it. Uh, and the Americans are in a, in, in a quandary. They have uh, allowed their government, the Biden administration, to cut off pipelines, to... Uh, refuse uh, leases on land to allow uh, natural gas to be fracked. And by the way, that affects us right here in, in, in the GTA, GTHA, Hamilton, the Golden Horseshoe. Uh, much of our natural gas doesn't come from even Western Canada. It comes from the Marcellus Shale just south of the border. Uh, so you know, we're now villainizing, we're, we're vilifying, we're demonizing the very things that have uh, provided us the, uh, you know, the impetus to our economic success and growth. And it has been done in a way that's very responsible. Scott, you and I have talked about it a thousand times. Look into Hamilton Harbor. Look at the Great Lakes. Look at the quality of air. It can always improve. But my goodness, we've come a long way yeah. in a very short period of time. Yes, yes, we have. And some of the younger people may not realize that. There was a time when they it don't. was a lot worse, way, way, way worse than what it ever is now. And, and it's, it's made, it's made, yes, it's made great progress. Where's the balance there, though, Dan? I mean, we've talked about this. Will all of this rising of prices and, and shortages and such, will that speed up renewables? Will that speed up development? Many have said if we take the same ambition that we have for coming up with a COVID-19 vaccine, we could solve this problem. Is it that easy? No, and we now know that renewables don't work. They don't provide the heft. They're not reliable. You, you know, whether it's cold or whether it's warm, whether it's dark, whether it's windy, whether it's not windy, we know reliables can't do the job. And we also recognize that where we have done the job, and, and we've done so masterfully here in Ontario, just down the street from you guys, for over 120 years. Uh, no, it's not a new thing. A hydropower uh, and, you know, the, the adoption of technologies then are still being used today. Uh, the Tesla version of how we, and uh, the true inventor, not the car. Um, you know, the, the use of nuclear reactors. Uh, you know, the first uh, groundbreaking in my old riding at Pickering Township in uh, September 11th, 1965, when they broke ground to build the first commercial nuclear reactors in North America. Look, we've been there. We understand the responsibility. But, you know, we're going to have to get real about what uh, reliables and renewables are. They are a stopgap measure. And if you don't believe me, then look at the damn cost of your electricity. It's gone up threefold. And if it were not for the provincial government absorbing a $6.5 billion debt every year, think how many hospital beds and teachers that could pay for. If it were not for that, you'd be paying about almost double the amount of electricity you're paying now, which, of course, as I mentioned earlier, has tripled in the past 10 years. It's interesting. Uh, there's chatter now about the highway above 407, 417, that we shouldn't be building this, blah, blah, blah. It's going to not save us any time. It's not going to do anything for us. Where do we drive all of these electric cars we're, uh, invent, uh, we're spending uh, millions and billions on if we're not building more infrastructure for them? 
well, how do you build it if you don't have gas taxes to support it? You're talking to the guy who is a member of parliament, brought in the idea, the notion of using the GST funds uh, the federal government would receive to uh, to uh, allow municipalities to fund transit, to fund uh, roads, uh, and to, of course, uh, allow us that opportunity to uh, ge- generate revenues so that we could pay for the infrastructure that makes us unique and competitive uh, in a North American context. We lose this to EVs. Someone's going to have to sooner or later realize there's no free lunch. Uh, and I don't have a problem with EVs. They're great. They're fun. Uh, I drive a hybrid. I know uh, it's it's uh, it, you know it's limits, but I also understand its importance. Look, internal combustion engines aren't the only deal in town. But you can't have politicians walking around following the Greta Thunbergs of this world who has no experience in reality, saying to people, "Oh, you get rid of your your internal combustion engine. You have to do this. You have to do that." Look, if we're going to have a generational battle based on the fact that uh, this generation has not done a very good job, then I'm going to suggest that people had best, especially this new generation, get used to the idea of living in the state of nature, eating acorns, and wearing animal skins. Because what you're proposing is a retrograde step backwards. And I'm not joking. I have this discussion with a lot of kids now, and I don't call them kids. They're smart. But they've been indoctrinated by a generation, unfortunately, and this is part of the teaching curriculum that I think has had a lot to do with distorting the reality and the views of the world. And so, hey, the teachers' pensions uh, don't want to invest in fossil fuels. Good luck. You may not have a pension once you're retired. My good friends in the teaching profession, and I have three members of my family who are actually teachers. Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, talking about the supply chain and energy crisis that awaits us this winter. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Take care, and thanks for having me, Scott. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That is a wrap for the show. Thanks for listening. As always, thanks to Will and Ken and Diana for contributing today. And as always, we leave it to you, the good CHML listener, to get up on top of the soapbox and have the last word. On the passports that are coming out, are these other countries going to accept our vaccination or are they going to reject them? 